Welcome to Enterprising Mindsets. My name is Sharon Davis, Chief Executive of Young Enterprise. Each week we'll be exploring different people's perspectives on an enterprising mindset. And today my guest is Stephen Welton. Stephen is Executive Chairman of BGF, a role he's held since July 2020, and he's responsible for the strategic direction of the company. Before taking on the role of Executive Chairman, Stephen was the founder CEO of BGF between 2011 and 2020. Under Stephen's leadership, BGF has grown from 1 to 16 offices across the UK and Ireland, with more than 2.2 billion invested and a team of 170 becoming in the process the most active growth capital investor in the UK. Stephen has extensive experience as an investor. Prior to BGF, he was one of the founder partners of the global private equity firm CCMP Capital, formerly JP Morgan Partners, and before that, managing director of Barclays Private Equity and Henderson Ventures, which he also co-founded. My first question is is really getting straight into an enterprising mindset. I think a lot of people talk about an enterprising mindset and equating that to setting up your own business. And, and I'm not so sure it's that straightforward, really. Uh, what's your definition of an enterprising mindset? I would almost start with a curious mindset and a willingness to ask um, questions. And I think certainly when you're talking about young people. And this is something I've always said to my own children and something that I follow myself. If you're not sure about something, ask a question. In asking questions, you develop a level of engagement. So you're not just receiving information, you're starting to probe information. And that to me is the the sort of bedrock of all education and development. And if you develop curiosity and you want to find out how things work, how they could potentially work better, it is a logical step to then start to think about, well, what could I do? And maybe there is a new solution to doing that. So an enterprising mindset is not something that you can study in a classroom um, like biology. It is something that comes from a questioning mind. And that to me is the, the really the beginning of opening your mind to the possibilities, uh, not just around you, but outside of you. And, and what we're really looking for is that people who can go beyond uh, their own immediate knowledge and their own immediate experiences to think beyond that. And that is the hallmark of an entrepreneur, a challenging mind, very much problem solving, and a sense that they can do anything. And that That's all part and parcel and wrapped up in this idea of an enterprising mindset. Essentially, we're saying it's quite multifaceted, really, the an enterprising mindset. And I'm curious about what you said about an entrepreneur or someone with an enterprising mindset thinking they could do anything. Where does that come from? Do you think that's kind of born? Do you think it's nurtured? Part of this is sense of self-confidence, mm-hmm. um, but not not all entrepreneurs are naturally self-confident. I think it's it's uh, it's the art of the possible, really. And if you think about education and business in a linear fashion, and we're obviously taught in a, in a traditionally linear fashion, you have to do something in a certain way. You need to learn some information in order to answer a specific question. Some of the world's greatest entrepreneurs would not necessarily have been brilliantly um, successful academically at school, partly because they don't think in a linear way. They think in a more lateral way, or they jump to a different conclusion to what a piece of evidence or some data may make you think automatically. So I think this willingness to explore, um, to potentially take risk, to do things differently is all part and parcel of a slightly different way 
of looking at things. And it perhaps goes to a, a question that is often asked, can you teach somebody to be an entrepreneur? And I think you can teach somebody many of the skills you need to be successful in business, but I'm not sure you can teach somebody to be entrepreneurial and you can't teach somebody to be funny. And I suppose it's those drivers underneath it, is it whether or not it's about passion, whether or not it's about wanting to have a different life than you have right now. It's, it is quite complex, isn't it? You know, what the drivers behind why people are entrepreneurial or, or have an enterprising mindset. One hallmark that you will find is passion because that sense of belief has got to start with the individual. I, I want to do something differently because it matters to me, and I think it will therefore matter to others. And I often think with uh, startups, one of the most exciting things is when you hire your first employee, because to convince yourself, um, if you're an entrepreneur, um, is a prerequisite, because if you can't convince yourself, you're going to be that person in the pub or the restaurant who has a great idea, but the great idea never becomes a business. So entrepreneurs will take the idea and they'll start it and they believe it and they've got to have that passion. But then you've got to convince somebody to come and work for you or people to come and work for you where you don't have at that stage much substance other than an idea and a sense of passion. And I think that is, again, at the core of what makes people have this um, enterprising mindset and this entrepreneurial flair. It's a determination that I'm going to go on this journey. I know where I want to go. Don't tell me I can't get there. Don't tell me it's impossible or there are too many obstacles because I am going to get there. And it's almost just watch me and I'll show you. And then when you get other people to join on that journey, it's incredibly powerful because you start to create a movement, as it were, and that becomes very much self-reinforcing. And some of the best startups, which have then scaled up, have this sense of it's almost as if you're fighting against, it's not so much an enemy, but you're fighting to make something happen. And it develops a really positive, determined approach. And that is very energizing. It's one of the things that all startups need, that energy to create momentum, which then translates into something more tangible and you keep building on that. And that's, um, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about our current environment that we're all living in, the current climate that we're living in. Uh, and I've struck by you and your thoughts around, you know, an entrepreneur thinking or an enterprising mindset thinking, I want to do something different. Do you think there's a potential for a collective mindset of business thinking about the situation we're in right now, the climate we're in, of doing things differently? One of the consequences of, um, of this global lockdown is that we are in an extraordinary environment where things that would never have been considered possible are happening. I mean, you wouldn't have imagined in your most pessimistic scenario that you could effectively shut the world's economy down um, pretty much overnight. And that sense of um, the impossible almost now becoming possible, I think, has a very healthy manifestation. I and mean, clearly, dealing with the pandemic has all sorts of significant um, uh, health, economic and social issues. But what it has shown is that if we apply our minds as sort of individuals and as sort of mankind, there is pretty much no problem that we're not going to be able to crack. And I was chatting to somebody the other day who was telling me, I think there are something like um, 250 plus global vaccine trials at the moment from highly credible sources. 
I don't think ever before in the sort of history of human endeavor has so much brain power and money been focused on one issue with such urgency. And it has to be done because this is obviously a crisis. But once the crisis has passed, I hope we don't lose sight of that ability to crack some of the world's biggest problems. And they don't all have to be of this significance, but the mindset coming back to that is really important. You can, if you apply your mind, talent, experience, capital, really make extraordinary things happen. And what we are likely to see as a consequence now of COVID is that when we emerge from this, the economy is not only gonna be suffering from the immediate consequences, of COVID, but we will be looking towards the future. And I think that is going to present huge opportunities as we start to take the planet more seriously. And whilst that was a big topic before COVID, what this has shown us is that we can actually do anything. And the people who will come up with the best sustainable ideas are going to be entrepreneurs. And that is the sort of power, I think, that we really want to harness now so the future post-COVID doesn't have to be a bleak one. It certainly should not be going back to where we were before March 2020. Absolutely. And I was struck what you were saying there about the potential to build a movement and to build a collective mindset and the entrepreneurs, we should be on the front foot of thinking about how we could do things differently. I'm also struck by lots of research that says that actually the gap of inequality will grow post-COVID. So what role do you think that, you know, an enterprising mindset has in developing the the capacity and the resilience of the, the whole of the UK workforce within the current climate, not just entrepreneurs that were starting and running businesses, but those people working in businesses. How we react and how we come out of um, COVID, I think will in large part be driven by how successful we are um, and willing we are to embrace the future and really get behind changing the nature of the economies that we all live and work in. How do you see us as a country supporting young people to prepare for that future world of work? Like you say, not looking backwards, but looking forwards and and embracing that change. The younger generation has been the one that has been hardest hit by the knock-on effects of, um, of the pandemic. I mean, they may not be as directly affected in terms of healthcare, but education has been interrupted, social interaction has been interrupted, the future is very uncertain. So if you're leaving school now, looking for a job or coming out of university, it's a very tough economic environment. And I think we need to do a lot more to recognize the challenges that presents because we can't have a lost generation who were just unfortunate to be coming out of school or university at this time. And I think what they have demonstrated is agility and a robustness and a willingness, as you've said, to to stand up and make their voice heard. This is not a passive generation who's just going to sit back and accept that their lot is not going to be a particularly good one. And I think harnessing that in a positive way is what we will need to do. So if we if we look at some of the future industries, and it, whether that's healthcare in the form of life sciences, or whether it's technology in the form of things like AI and cyber, there are going to be significant growth opportunities, employment opportunities, um, scope to create wealth through enterprise that are going to need a different workforce, a workforce that is agile and resilient, 
that is grown up in a technological world that's used to getting information and interacting in a different way. And that's where I think we need to be focusing um, with these young people. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is to harness a lot of the UK's existing strength in uh, healthcare, life sciences, the environment. You think we are the largest producer of offshore wind power in the world, for example. So in terms of ambition, why can't we create the world's largest green company? There's absolutely no reason why the UK can't do that. Why can't we create not only the vaccine for COVID-19, but for other um, but for other viruses or other healthcare problems around the world? And I think with that sort of ambition focused on the younger generation, what you're then starting to do is rather than confronting them with uncertainty, you're saying it is uncertain, but it's creating significant new opportunities. And I suppose with the advent of of digital, we can actually provide young people with opportunities, with uh, role models or digital or volunteer opportunities to bring those examples of life sciences, the health health industry into schools that perhaps might not or communities that might not have had access to those uh, those opportunities before in a way that we weren't able to do pre-COVID because it would have physically meant a volunteer travelling all that way to a school perhaps that might not have been able to do that. You can you can pretty much bring those uh, sectors to life in a way we couldn't do before. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And in a way, technology is the ultimate democratising tool. We've all benefited now and become very familiar with video conferencing, whether that be Zoom or Teams or, or Skype. And it's gone from being something that you would do occasionally, it was a bit of a novelty, mm-hmm. to absolutely the norm now, And people are getting more and more adept at using those meetings, knowing how to curate those meetings, knowing how to convey information. And in the context of sort of education and the next generation, rather than sort of feeling constrained by the locality that you are actually operating in, we have the opportunity to sort of convey information and to get some of the the world's leaders in their respective sectors talking to, motivating, inspiring the next generation in a very immediate and powerful way. And I think that is a great opportunity. And if I have a fear, as we sort of return to, you know, I don't like the phrase, the new normal, but as we return to something more predictable, that we actually lose sight of all of the um, benefits and the necessities of COVID in terms of communication and the use of technology. So really thinking about you, how we use technology as an enabler to keep making that progress. Yeah. I mean, and again, focusing on education, I mean, delivering, delivering education to a classroom of 25 or 30 people, uh, not all of those students are going to be progressing at the same level. So you're pitching at a certain level, probably in the middle, which may not be either sufficient for those who are struggling a bit or those who are particularly gifted. If you're doing um, uh, education where you can monitor progress on a more individual basis, when you can personalize the way in which uh, somebody is taught, that has got to be more powerful. So I think a lot of this clearly does start with education, inspiring people, informing them, giving them the skills to both learn and research. So building on um, on the role of technology, and but actually also thinking about education, its wider sense, um, 
What has the last six months taught you in terms of um, of learning, but also about leadership? One of the consequences of COVID is the sort of forced fragmentation of of the workforce and also the student population. So we've gone from being together in schools or offices or buildings and factories to all working remotely. And at one level, that's incredibly um, anonymous, soulless, and potentially quite lonely. Think about it from the standpoint of leadership of, of any organization. If that was left unchecked, you really would get the worst of all worlds because you don't have the ability to interact and you're losing connection with people. So certainly from our standpoint, and I think others have been doing this as well, there has been a need to over-communicate during this period of time. And when you're working at home, you're not sort of skiving and doing nothing. You are actually working. And I think it's probably got rid of a lot of taboos. It's helped us to finally confront that age-old question about what's the right work-life balance. I mean, everybody talks about a work-life balance, and it has shifted that because people have been um, working at home. And I think the next phase is obviously to combine the best of all of that. Uh, Remote working does help. Not having to commute every day does help. Conversely, not being in an office, not actually interacting with your colleagues is something we want to get back to. So I suppose leadership is adapting to changing circumstances, trying to ensure above all else that there is that sense of community, which when you're suddenly fragmented into 180 different locations as opposed to a few offices, becomes harder unless you work harder at it. From one perspective, it is, again, understanding that different people's experiences of working from home will be different. People in their early careers perhaps haven't got that space or the study in the in, in the office and perhaps working in a bedroom where they're also sleeping and all of those things is, is difficult to manage alongside the fact that commuting is also very difficult as well. So how have you managed that, um, I guess, mix of generations, mix of, uh, mix of roles uh, in, in drive? that collective endeavor there are some things that we can't change so you're absolutely right that space is a is a real luxury which people haven't really taken um, taken note of before but if you're suddenly working at home um, the danger of course if you've got no space is that your work-life balance is completely skewed because uh, your work and your life are one and the same and you have no real personal life because your your flat has become your uh, your home so I think the first thing is to recognize that. Some of us who may live in the countryside and we you know, have a specific room where you can have a home office. Now, that's a luxury to be able to have a home office. Maybe you've got good internet connections. They don't get frustrated with the ability to make calls and do video conferencing. So for some, this has been all upside. I don't have to commute. I've got to walk to my desk rather than, uh, rather than get on a long train journey. And there are a lot of positives to that. For others, it hasn't been so easy because maybe the room you sleep in is also the room you work in. And in the uh, early days of lockdown, when people were um, not going out of their flat, I mean, from dawn to dusk, you're in a very small area. And I think that can create quite a lot of different issues. And it can be not only frustrating, it can be lonely, um, it can be a bit tedious and repetitive, which is where I think the communication with your colleagues becomes important, encouraging people not just to sit at their desk all day, make sure you um, have a break, encouraging people to take holidays, to make sure that they switch off at the end of the day, because it's very easy when you're working remotely just to carry on indefinitely. So a large part of this is 
really good personal interaction and then the sense of teamwork built remotely, which is not something any of us have done before, which does become very powerful because, of course, you can create teams remotely, which are every bit as effective and in some cases more effective because you can pull people from around the country and historically that wouldn't have been as easy logistically. So we found that we have been able to work very effectively in that context. The proviso I would add to that is how long can you sustain this? Because when we started, it was almost, I mean, it's such an extraordinary event without precedent and overnight. And there really was a sense then, wow, this is a major challenge. We must all rally around together. And there's almost a burst of adrenaline to focus on dealing with the immediate crisis. And in our case, it would be to ensure that companies did not run out of cash. If you fast forward six months, you can't be on that permanent state of um, alert alert Mm -hmm. because fatigue will set in. You'll have other issues. So I think the, the summer and August has been a good chance for people actually to take some time off. If they're fortunate, go away and to recharge batteries. And I think that's been a really important element. And as we look at the next six to 12 months, we're going to have to find the next evolution of how we will adapt to this. And I think in our case, and I think in many other um, companies, it will be developing a hybrid model. How do you maintain some of the flexibility of home working? How do you get people back together in groups, in offices, maintaining social distancing and following um, uh, in a good sensible healthcare guidelines because the optimum is doing both of these things in a way that works obviously for an employer but also is comfortable for an employee. My last question, Stephen, really, just just listening to you and just how impressive those results are. You are the most active growth capital investor in the UK. What role does risk play in an enterprising mindset for you? I think it's one of the core attributes because if you go back to the idea of setting up a business, that is incredibly risky. There are many, many startups that never actually get off the ground. There are many startups that fail soon after having been set up. And if you looked at things completely dispassionately, you'd take the view, well, that's too risky. And you know, the number of times I've heard people talk about somebody who has been very successful and say, well, they were lucky. Um, And it isn't luck. I am a big believer that you make your own luck. And the person who is lucky is the one presented with an opportunity who embraces it, recognizes there is risk, but that's outweighed by the opportunity. And we don't hear as much about the, the stories of the people who don't succeed for obvious reasons. You tend to focus on the people who have been successful, but they are at the tip of a very large iceberg. And if you think of that iceberg as a metaphor for risk almost, if you are not prepared and are able to get comfortable with the idea of taking risk, you will never be able to create something completely on your own. And that is what an entrepreneur is. They will see the risk, but they won't be overawed by the risk because the opportunity for them will be bigger. And that sense of actually driving your own destiny, creating something from new uh, is a hallmark of all entrepreneurs. And it's almost a bloody mindedness sometimes that I am going to make this work. I know everybody says it won't work, but I will make it work. So risk is a core, core component. And for there is a reason there are not that many entrepreneurs. If you look at the sort of 
population as a whole, it's not easy. You've got to have a lot of self-belief. You've got to have determination. And you've got to be comfortable <clears throat> dealing with ambiguity because nobody can guarantee that an enterprise is going to be successful. You can guarantee if you don't start and if you don't have that risk appetite, it will never be successful. So a willingness to accept risk, but not unbridled risk, a sense of balance, but um, ultimately determination and passion being the, the things which get entrepreneurs over the risk. And for many, they can't get over the risk because the risk just looks too great. Thank you for joining us today, Stephen. Well, uh, delightful to talk to you and thank you very much for the opportunity. Enterprising Mindsets is part of a podcast series brought to you by Young Enterprise. To listen to more episodes, please find us through your usual podcast services. Music